Yes, it is recording in progress on five, four, three, two, one. Hey, Alex Simmons. How are you, Alex Simmons? Chris Ryan, Alex Simmons here at Tell the Damn Story. Ladies and gentlemen, we are really happy to be here and glad that you are here with us. Absolutely. Alex, how you been? What's going on, bro? How have I been? I've been darn fine. I don't want to curse in front of the kids. No, I've been damn fine, actually. It's been a good couple of weeks in particular. Uh, a little bit of rain, but who cares about that? It's good for somebody. The ducks, uh, the grass, the green. <laughs> sunshine, beautiful sunshine the past few days, too. And just very quickly, as some of you have been listening to the show, and of course, that's millions across the planet, I teach uh, screenwriting at the New York Film Academy. And it's this past week has been the last week of the spring-summer semester. So there's a lot of hoopla, people getting their scripts together, getting ready for getting ready to film some of their projects. And then, of course, take off to go home to wherever that is on the planet to visit family and things for the next couple of weeks before they come back and jump into the next semester. Pretty cool. That was Helter Skelter Frenzy and craziness and confusion and some deep creative questions, which we will touch on at least a couple of those in the next segment of our show. But it was a great yeah. time. And I, I really enjoyed working with the students and uh, look forward to the fall. Yeah, we did some of the questions last week and we have the, the second half of that list and uh, happy to answer them for the students and for other people out there. Very cool stuff. Just quickly, Soul Scream Anthalazine. It's the it'll be the third issue, but it's the fourth part of five because we had the teaser and then volume one is here. Volume two is now available. Yeah, bro. Available. And where is it available? Yeah, Amazon.com. I'm still working on multiple platforms, but I'm already established there. So I'm going to try and spread out from there. But the first thing to do is to get all of these out. As we may have mentioned, it's quiet horror short stories. And what we're doing is exploring how big a tent horror is. So, for example, you're in the upcoming issue, Monstrous Hearts, in Demons, a oh. Merry Day adventure. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that is, there's horror in it and horrible behavior in it. But that's an adventure. And it's definitely got, um, it deals with one of the biggest horrors in our culture, which is racism. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a little bit of a treasure hunt. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. And that's the idea that I'm trying to explore with this miniseries. How many different places horror shows up, at least to some extent. Mm. So we have that. And for each author's short story, it's followed by an author profile. And those are becoming fun. The, the interns, there's two profiles for you if you're watching on YouTube. Left and right. Uh, the interns who are writing that, wink, wink, nod, have great, very individual voices. And there's a very subtle, overarching story going on, like a behind the scenes or like a cast, maybe of the, like, a not comedic, version of say the office or something like that because uh. you get workplace stuff all the way through from the publisher i don't know who that bum is the assistant editor who is also has her own adventures and the three interns and that you're starting to see that story is going somewhere as well it's an, it's been a really fascinating and creative Late. experiment 
Yeah, it's a very multi-layered experience. And folks, when if you really think about it for a moment, you're going to be getting, my goodness, like three layers of storytelling here. You're going to get the basic stories that each author has contributed. Then you're getting the interviews and the interns POVs of things. And that's another layer. And then you've got this, as he said, overarching tale that's unfolding over the five issues. Yeah. Really, for the money, please, <laughs> please. Okay. And the where out where it's going surprised me, and I'm torturing Glorious with it. <laughs> I'll give her little hints, but this is the first time I'm not telling her details, like new details every day. I'll just say, "Oh wow, I was just in the shower and I realized things are actually work worse for." Oh, I can't tell you. <laughs> Those of you, this is your first time listening. Glorious is his wonderful wife of yes. mon, m- mucho many years. Mucho, mucho. Yeah, we're going on, we're going to celebrate 37 in November, 37 years. And uh, she has been my first reader forever because it, it's a cheat, to tell you the truth, because she'll be enthusiastic. And then we'll push for a couple of days. I'll just pester her with questions and find out if there's anything she thinks I need working on. But if you get that one, hey, that's, I really love, I don't like horror. And I really love that. That was great. I'm very <laughs> proud of you. You get that psych- psychological boost and you can go to the outside world, which is not nearly as Chris, how uh, it understanding. Is. <laughs> I don't think, Chris, how difficult it is for some writers to get somebody who's close to them to read their stuff. Oh, yeah, it's impossible. I don't know how I got this lucky. And God bless her. There are some projects she's read multiple times. Like I think Genius High is behind me. She's read that six to ten times. And it's various incarnations, right? It's not like Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So when I call her glorious, there's a lot of reasons for that. Because one, she puts up with me. Two, still laughs at my jokes. Three, she hasn't changed the locks on the doors. And she still reads my stuff. That's ridiculous. Who oh, does that? Just sure. glorious. <laughs> oh, okay, folks. We told you that you would be getting a few things here in this particular episode. Obviously, we shared a little bit of the updates on what we both, Chris and I, are doing respectively. In our- now, it's down to, now it's down to business. Yes. Now let's get down to the second half of the Q&A scenario that we started the previous week. Yes. And we have some questions here that are waiting to be answered by both of us. We'll both give our individual take on the answers for this these particular questions. Chris, what's numero uno, or actually number five in the... It's number five, if we're going from last week. And when I first read this question, I thought it was ground we had already covered. But the more you think about it, the more it's new new territory. So here we go. I'll ask the question, and Alex, you can either go first or be silas bar sinister and say simon bar sinister and say no you go first ryan (laughs) all right so here's the question how do i write a story about a sensitive subject wow i would like to serve that one right back at you um okay yeah that's fair enough you go first on that all right so i i think there's layers to this right a sensitive subject might be somebody coming out that might be sensitive, yeah, and or being a new kid in town, right? Who's our comic book friend who won all the Newberry and all the awards for? I can't hear you. 
Gary Kraft, right? That's been a sensitive topic that got more sensitive for him, right? It was it was a new kid in class, a new kid in town, and it was he was winning awards. It was a great story. It was sensitive about that subject. And then you all know, of a sudden it started getting banned. And it was sensitive in a whole different level. Like, where did this retro racism come from? And that's a story for really God, it would be great to see Jerry on here and have him talk about it. But that's a different types of sensitivity. I'm about to reboot what was City of Woe. It'll be sometime around Labor Day, maybe a little bit after Labor Day. And it'll be Mallory and Gunner Inferno. Right. That's, okay, new title. New font. Yeah. I, I wanted to tie it a little closer. There's three tales that I tell. This is the first one. And they mirror Dante's uh Divine Comedy, Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. This is the first part. Inferno, just a, just a step away from Inferno. But in that story, Mallory's father is very sick. And there's at a certain point in the novel, he passes on. And that comes from dealing with my own father's passing. The night before he died, I sat vigil with him. I stayed with him in the hospital room. And things happened there that um, made me question my faith and what I was doing and what, and months afterwards, I realized it was exactly what Mallory needed. But I couldn't just, because it's not just my father. I have four siblings. So that becomes very sensitive in a different way. So I got in touch with each one of them and asked their permission. Mm. And it's a fictionalized, it wasn't, but the, and to each one's individual degree of reaction, they all said yes, but some had more questions than others. And then I was able to move forward. When I did Genius High, that part of that was because I wanted to celebrate high school and the creativity. And if anyone can solve a crazy mystery, I think high school kids are great for that. <laughs> but the other reason, the subtext, was that when I was a high school teacher, I saw a lot of pain in those schools and those students. And I wanted to do my best to represent as many different forms of pain as I saw. And there was this one kid. He was testing the waters of transition he is now she and the transition is gone last time i saw a picture of this person transition was complete right but when i was experiencing coming face to face with this person every day it was still more he and they were so self-conscious and so in so much pain about trying to be who they were that I, I happened to have a hallway duty outside the art room. And when they had to go somewhere, they would come out of the room and like just plant themselves against the lockers and walk as close to the lockers again. Like they just didn't want to be seen. And it broke my heart every day. Mm. When I tried to say, how you doing? Hey, good to see you. None of that worked. There was no trust. There was not, and It was terrible that I couldn't help this person. 
And there's a character in Genius High named Stevie, and they have completely trans- transitioned yeah. and are very comfortable with themselves and very helpful to the story. I meant Stevie to show up in one scene just so that someone could see that person and say, wow, I can get there too. And then in the writing of Genius High, every time I ran into a problem, Stevie showed up and solved the problem. <laughs> so she became a much, they became or whatever, but she calls herself she, her, became a much bigger part of the story. And I'm grateful to her for doing so. And just to be clear, you're saying you're grateful to the character. Yeah story to help you complete the story yeah yeah and it she took control and she wanted to be there more Mm. and i originally wrote her so that somebody who was going through as much pain as i saw that individual go through might be able to see as ah i can get there you know last a little clip on that real person disappeared from school was getting homeschooled and stuff. It was just so sad. It was, oh my God. But I didn't know what was actually happening. And then I, at that time, I also put out the school newspaper. I went, I used to go to the yearbook guy because he would get a bunch of prom pictures and stuff like, and put them in just so that would be current. And then they would go to the printer, right? So what didn't you use? And what didn't, and he says, these are what I didn't use, but check this out. And it was a picture on the dance floor. And in the center, with the biggest smile, looking radiant, there she is, beautiful evening gown, transitioned and back for the prom. And it was just really satisfying to see that smile. Mm. I hadn't begun Genius High, or I hadn't finished Genius High. I had begun it. Um, but I re- that smile... Every time Stevie showed up and solved something, I would remember that picture and that smile. Mm. And hopefully someone who hadn't gotten to the smile part yet might run into Stevie. I and see. Feel, it know, was feel good. It was possible. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great so, answer. So there's that answer. Your turn. I gave you as much time as possible. <laughs> so here's the question again. How do I write a story about a sensitive subject? And... I hope they got the answer from that, that I was very careful and sensitive to the people involved in what I wanted to write about. How would you do it? Oh, king of all words. Old. Yeah. Once again, here we go. All words. Subject talking. My my Bronx accent's coming out. A-L-L. All words. King of all words. There he is. My, My approach is not that far from what you said. I won't go back down that track, but what I will do is expand on it in terms of some personal history from my family, my side of the family, and in particular, my mom. And it's a story that I've shared with you, and I've also shared with other people. So part of it is, why would we share sensitive material? Why do we feel we want to put that in? So the first thing I would say is, if you're doing it for sensationalistic reasons, smack yourself. Because the question then becomes, do you really want to take sensitive material, something that you've already determined is not necessarily taboo, but could offend or hurt others, Right. throw it in there as a gimmick. If you want to do that, I'd say you need to talk to yourself a bit more and, and really question your motives on that. But I agree. 
here's the other side of it. If the material, the sensitive material, is to serve the better good, the greater good, if you feel that by sharing this material, others will benefit from it, such as Chris had just mentioned, or if you feel that by sharing this information, hopefully those hearing it will be able to take that moment and say, yes, I've gone through something like that, or I understand now how I might look at another circumstance or something that may come up in, in the future. So to be more specific, I sometimes when I, I not only am a writer, but I also I teach workshops. I also go and I speak at events and sometimes speak to young writers or full grown adults in various parts of the world. And quite often, part of what I do is I pay a certain amount of homage to my mom. And I do that because <clears throat> a couple of things. One, I wanted people to understand that if you are struggling because you have uh, your social situation is not affluent uh, or maybe you don't feel as brilliant as 13 other people in the same room with you or whatever, you don't have some of the benefits that you think you must have in order to achieve. Uh, my mom came from a circumstance of, again, being very sickly. My father wasn't in the picture. And so she had to raise me on her own with health issues. And through all of that, and being Black, for those of you who don't see the show in color, also being African-American or Black, there were challenges with that as well. And through all of those things, she could have approached life from a, shall we say, from a, a woe is me kind of position or a, a place of anger or whatever. And she didn't do that. What she tried to impair, impart to me was a, a desire to go for the things that were important to me, to, to, to work hard for things that I really wanted to be able to do or achieve, to treat people fairly, blah, 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 blah. So there's a lot of things in there. And because of that, I never felt my imagination was squelched. I had a huge one. I could be an annoying little thing from time to time with my mom, but she dealt with it. She dealt with it as best she could. She shared life lessons with me as best she could. She did a number of things that helped me blossom as a creative. So for one reason, for that big reason, <clears throat> I always try and share some story about her. And to talk about the fact that my father had walked out on us or things like that, some people might want to keep that close to the vest or keep that as very personal because the whole world doesn't need to know that. By the same token, there are people out there who think that because of the same circumstance, and I don't mean necessarily Black people, there are people all over the world who are being raised by single parents or being raised in a situation. I'm trying to share with them that you can still go for it. You can still strive for things greater than even your family or friends might think you're capable of. And here's how my mom, with her challenges, helped me to go even further in my life. In that case, again, talking about sensitive material, I chose to identify the person, my mother, myself. If I were doing a fictional story, and believe me, I have used some of the other things we've dealt with over the years in some of my stories, then it's just about taking the circumstance and setting it up in the story so that your character's authentically are going through that challenge. Exactly. Like you've planted your sensitive situation on top of characters going, what the heck, they wouldn't be dealing with this. No, right. you're making sure your characters authentically are dealing with these challenges and trying to get whatever message you're trying to share 
with your audience, get that message across as clearly and effectively as possible. So I would say in conclusion that, A, you've got to give yourself permission to use sensitive material that may come from your life and B, as Chris did, if that sensitive material is a part of other people's lives around you, then yeah, you got to talk to them and get their permission, get let them know what's happening and try and make sure they're going to be cool with that. And then more so, C, please don't do that just for sensationalistic reasons. Right. You know, please to do that sort of thing has great weight one way or the other. And I would hope that when you choose to do that material, you are respectful to yourselves and you're respectful to the other people that might be affected by it. Well, it's it's important that you go beyond, well, LBGTQIA people are, they're hot right now. Let's put one in there. That's, that's. Yeah. Exploitation. And it's, it wasn't great in the seventies. It's not great now. (laughs) Um, And sometimes you're going to have to wrestle with it. I have a novel that I've wanted to write for 30 years now. It's called The North. That was the part of my, my, my section of Parkchester was called The North. It was cut in four quadrants, north, south, east, and west. And it was in the 70s when the neighborhood was changing. There was racial tension. But also... It was 151 buildings. People piled up on top of each other. It was a very as solid a place as it was concrete and brick and blacktop and chains. Metaphorically, it fit because it was almost constant dozens, constant put downs. It was also old world. You get the smack and all that sort of stuff. And my mom suffered from uh, mental illness her whole life. And most of the time, for most of her life, it was misdiagnosed. So she'd have these wild rage fits. And part of the story I want to write is not about her rage fits, but about my old man. Because he stayed. And in a really impossible situation, he stayed. And for most of those 20, 30 years, whenever I thought about this story, the fun part will be the outside, the antics and all that. But the one of the important parts will be, how do you capture that? And sometimes you really have to think, if you're going to write about something sensitive, how do you do it justice? Because you can't hit everything with a sledgehammer. And again, this is where... One of my favorite pieces of advice go, write it, let it suck, and then peel it back and rewrite and rewrite and read it out loud like you're getting paid a lot of money. And listen, is that, am I doing justice to this or am I blowing it? And and, and sometimes it's going to take a lot of work, but if it's really important to you to write about that sensitive topic, you will do the work. All right, let's move to the next one, sir. Yes. How do I write a story that's based on my experience or experiences and not give away too much personal information? That is similar uh, to, to, to some degree to the question that we had a moment ago. 
I think just, again, my short answer to that would be, see the previous answer, but also to, again, you've got to determine how much you want to reveal, A, personally, but then also as a storyteller, how much needs to be revealed or to serve the story. Right. You find, at least as far as I'm concerned, if you find that you've got to tell more than you're personally willing to in order to get the point across in the story, then I would say probably don't. You're going to have to live with that. And it's it may be very painful or embarrassing or whatever. So I would say, again, look at how much you're willing to tell and how that will affect you. And then look at how much is necessary to get the point across during the story and see if that balances out. So that would yeah. be my answer to that. And I think you have to be, you have to be a little tough on yourself. I did about eight years, six or eight years of journalism, writing about somewhere between 12 and 20 stories a week. And there were tons more press releases and tons more other things going. And you had to say, all right, what's the thing that you really have to tell people? And that's where I developed trying to figure out what the story that needs to be told is. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of the reasons I haven't written the North yet is because it hasn't been the burning thing I needed to write. Mm. Everybody grew up. Why is your story unique? There have been many people who have written stuff and it's, yeah, that's a story. Why is it? What's it contributing to? And it's really tough to say that. That does old saying. People ask, what advice can you give? about someone who wants to be a writer. If you can avoid it at all, <laughs> you have to really be honest with yourself. The hardest thing is to be completely honest with yourself. Does this story need to be told? Does this story need to be told now? Does it need to be told by me? Am I really the best person to tell this story? Mm-hmm. And then what story am I really telling? I'll give you an example of someone who did it really well, and it's not me. Dennis Lee Hain published a book, or his came out with a book this year called Small Mercies. Mm. And it's about a woman named Mary Pat Fennessy. And she is blue-collar, I think, Southie Boston, right? Not really well-educated. High school education. Grew up in a racist community believing that we take care of our own and then they started this was takes place in the 70s when Boston passed the law to force busing and that's all going crazy and at the same time she suffers a personal yet another personal tragedy Hmm. she can't find her daughter And when she goes to find her daughter, this is a tough broad. She may be one of the great American characters to come out this century. And she is deeply flawed. She is a white racist because that's the only thing she ever knew. And when she starts looking under rocks and opening doors, and pushing, where's my daughter? And starts finding out the truth. It's hard lessons America time. And it is gorgeously written. Not, I'm not talking about Shakespeare gorgeously written. 
or James Lee Burke, you ever read him, his writing, his fiction is like poetry. Dennis Lehane is a street writer. I love street writers. And it is vibrantly alive in all of its beautiful ugliness. And it's the tale that America needs to read. And, and because everyone that, is suffering with what the hell's the truth these days? And holy shit, I did some stuff wrong. And how does this tie into the question you were saying? The Hain had to ask, how do I tell this story? Mm. The story about what happened in Boston when they had to deal with forced integration. And it could have very easily been yet another by the books racist story or learn to love your brother's story and Lee Haines said nah that's the real story is how ignorant we are and how flawed we are in America and how hard we hold on to truths that are lies Okay, okay. and that is a great, a textbook example of how a very personal story was told by carefully choosing who to tell the story through. Hmm. That's why I brought that up. Okay, cool. cool. All right, sir. Thank you. Question number seven? Yes, we have two more. Two more to go. Seven is... Can I write about something that happened to a friend or family member without giving away their identity? Go for that one, sir. Yeah, but why? <laughs> you can do it. Why are you doing it? What? Why does this story absolutely have to be told? And then if that person is still alive, you better get the blessing. And only then can you begin to start thinking about how do I tell this story? I, you don't want to do a mirror and call the character Cal when he was Al to his <laughs> go and, and, and either write a memoir or write nonfiction and tell this story's this person's story. Or if you want to fictionalize it, then you have to, again, everything Every aspect of the story needs to serve the story. So who must this person be? Mm. And Dennis Lehane, to go back to that example, could have very, very easily written about a punk kid named Denny who went through this forced integration up there in Boston. But it's not the best way to tell that story, right? Certainly. Not. So how how do you represent this person? Or is it just the story and it's not really about how this person looks? How this, so you can, it can be very different, but careful. I think you tread carefully and you mow a lot of lawns and walk a lot of dogs and go shopping a lot, do laundry and fold laundry and all that time. Yeah. Think about it and think about it and show that, tell that story in your head until okay, I this is how I can do it with respect and offer people something that is worth their time reading and that will somehow help them. 
I think Chris has, has summed that one up nicely. I think what I will do with that question was I will explain, at least from my point of view as a teacher and as a writer, why questions like this come up. Partially, some emerging writers, new writers, and sometimes people who've been at it for a while, begin looking for plots and ideas in the total realm of fantasy. I have to make everything up. I have to come up with a circumstance that has nothing to do with any reality I know of, and characters, and a crime, or a, a set of adventures, or, or situations, and they're coming completely from their imagination, okay. which sometimes doesn't always work. And then there are others who go, okay, where am I going to get an idea from? And they start to look around them, either looking inward or looking at what they see before their eyes in their neighborhood, on the news or whatever. And so there's always a question of where do I go for the source for my material? Or if I have an idea for a story that I've come up with, but I need to help flesh out the world with some real characters or authentic characters or characters that are more like the ones in my story, and that's not a life I lead, where do I go to source that? So what we're trying to do here in answering these questions is to give you some parameters to think about. If you're going to do a story about something that happened to someone else, and we've already said definitely, even though you're going to do a fictionalized version or you're going to change the names to protect the innocent, it, it's not a bad idea to make sure that the people that you're going to write about, even though you're changing names, that they're going to be okay with this. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes if they are, they can give you some insight that will even make the story better, that will help your characters to come across more authentically. So it's really about, A, having some an, an ethical approach to how you use the material, and then having a researcher's approach in terms of doing your homework, and then serving the story as the writer. In other words, let me write this the best that I can so that this story will be the best it can be at whatever skill level I'm at. And I think in order to do that, you have to be as comfortable and as realistic about what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say. So that's why, again, we're taking the time to talk about the methodologies, but also mm -hmm. some of the consequences of doing this kind of material. Sure. Yeah. So what's, what's uh, question number eight? We go in a different direction with question number eight. And yet, it calls for equally strong reflection and equally hard choices. Is that for foreshadowing? <laughs> All right. So here's the question. And whoever asked this question, thank you, because it's a really important question. How do, how do you follow your passion or your passion project when you're not making a lot of money doing it? at the moment, and you're getting outside pressures to get another job, to pursue something that is safer and that pays better. Uh, yeah. How, how do you do that? You want to go first or me? Whatever you want, sir. You are the Lord of all things. Oh, please. <laughs> I'm, I'm the jester. One, two, three. And if you know that reference, folks, you're good. My thought here on this is... Uh, it, it harkens to something that I've often said, and it's not even my original thought, but it goes with this phrase that a goal without a plan is a dream. Right. And the reason why I like that phrase is definitely we can have our passion goal. We can want to become great actors or great writers or 
a great scientist or whatever, we can we can definitely want to go after that thing with all our heart and soul. Mm-hmm. But if we don't work out a plan to obtain that, to go after that, to pursue that, a process by which we take these steps leading us towards that, then it is just wishing. And so for me, as and in terms of my life experiences, and I had some hard up and downs in pursuing a writing and, and performing career, there were times when I resisted getting a job because I wanted to stay available for those auditions and all that. And rent fell behind and other bills fell behind and the refrigerator was empty. And that was not fun. Yeah. Not fun. It was very hard, very awkward, very scary at times. I blew it a few times and found myself in very awkward situations. And the reality is eventually you realize, okay, I got to do something to make some money. So I think one of the things that you want to look at is literally, what's your passion? Okay. And let's say you want to be a writer, like Chris and I, you want to be a writer, right? What kind of writer, what, what, you know, do you want to work for a newspaper? Do you want to work for magazines? Do you want to write fictional stories? Do you want to write nonfiction material? What do you want to do? And start looking at how people ahead of you have acquired that. What steps? Do you need to study things? Do you need to be writing this? Do you need to be submitting? Do you need to be writing more? Start looking at what you need to do to get you from where you are to where you really want to be. Map that out and understand, okay, until I get to, let's say, if it's a position of one through 10, until I get to point five or six, where I'm somehow generating enough income from this to pay my bills, I need to be doing something else and then find out what that something else is and understand that, yeah, maybe you're flipping burgers, maybe you're delivering things or whatever. The reality is you understand that I'm doing this now, but I'm working towards that future and I have a plan and I can see where I am making moves that are going to get me there. Just hold on and try and keep things together. And I'll just quickly reference one other person. Edward James Almos, which, and you guys can find this on YouTube if you want. Look up Edward James Almos. He was an actor in particular back in the 80s. He played Stand the police and deliver. on uh, Miami Vice and a wow. very kind of character. I'm not going to go into all that now, but it's a great, striking, impressive character. But he talks about at that particular time when Michael Mann, the producer of that series, offered him an, a reoccurring role on a hot new TV series and laid out money offers like crazy to him. Edward initially was turning them down because his passion was to produce material, written and or performed material that shined a better light on Latinos, on Puerto Rican, Dominican, whatever, in in America at that time. He wanted to tell more of their stories. Mm -hmm. It was very important to him. And how was he making it while he was trying to get those things going? He was at night driving a moving truck, right? So he was making some bread to pay the rent. He had a wife and a child to keep food on the table. He was also getting some acting gigs here and there. But the bottom line was he was willing to do that moving truck whole gig in order to keep his dream alive and to go after his passion project. Now, eventually what happened was that man's offer hit a a number and a set of arrangements or particulars that allowed Edward to say yes to that and not give up on some of the other things he wanted to do. But had that not been the case, he would have 
totally, and he did several times, turned down the offer because his passion project was X and he knew what he had to do in the meantime to keep him and his family going. So I would just say, again, look at the reality of what you want. What's your passion? What's your passion project? What does it take to produce that or accomplish that? Lay out the steps and then figure out what you're willing to do to make that possible. There's a couple of ways to answer this. Go for it, Chris. To dovetail with what you're saying, I'll invoke the name of the late comedian uh, friend of mine, Rich Ramirez, who was a a great example of creative hustle. He wanted, he was a computer programmer who wanted to be a stand up comedian. So he was gigging everywhere until he could consistently get enough money from his gigs to get to walk away from the computer programming. And he was making, he was doing well from there. So he took the hit, went, and then he directed teen plays at the Boys and Girls Club. He taught acting classes, and then he would do cruise ships. He would do this. He would, he, we created a sketch comedy club to do. He did, co-wrote a, a one-man show with him. He just tried everything. And at one point, he got a gig in the, for the South Soul, the comedy troupe, in the New York City prisons, Rikers and the Tombs. And I was with him at the time. So I went to Rikers with him. And I, it was one of the few times that we really had a major debate. Mm. Because I understood the money was good. But my argument was, this is not your audience. Get a computer programming gig to get money. This, they're just, I'm sure they were glad to be, to have a change of pace and God bless them, whatever, but they weren't understanding any of the the sketches and the girls were in peril. We Mm -hmm. had some great comedians in there and it was, I felt that the room change when they went on stage and I guilted them into rethinking that and God bless him. He was enough of a creative person as far as getting gigs that he was able to get gigs to replace that lucrative, but you have to make those decisions. If you're going to be being creative is part hustle. You got to get out there, not in a negative connotation, you got to get out there and get your stuff out there. It can make some money. Now, me, I've been working since I was 10 or 11 years old. We had a lot of people, a lot of mouths to feed. My mom had her challenges. My father was working two jobs most of the time. He didn't have time for, or we didn't have funds for, hey, I want pro kids. I want Converse. I want, I went, they paid for Catholic high school for me because they wanted me to go to Catholic high school. But I went as a freshman in someone else's clothes. I don't know where my mother got these clothes, but they were several different pairs of plaid double knit bell bottoms. <laughs> and then to complete my humiliation, and it'll tie in eventually. Uh, it turns out that person who's used to wear those clothes was an upperclassman at my high school. So oh, whenever and- I wore them walking past, he'd go, hey, 
there go my pants. So somebody had donated his pants and you wound like, up? His, he had grown out of them. His mother gave them to my mother. Neither of them thinking what it would be like. Yeah, we. so I worked, right? And the, I'm telling you this because my mindset was always I needed income. So the idea of living the artist's life where you work for almost nothing and you work and you build up your career, you might as well have asked me to look for jobs on Mars. I It just wasn't in my experience. I, I wore other people's clothes. <laughs> so I had to figure out how to do how to answer the call that I had to write or to do whatever. I've done a little bit of acting. I've done a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but it was always informative of the writing. So I went into journalism and found out the hard way that if you're going to live in New York City and you want to be a journalist, you better have Columbia or NYU J School or Northwest or Northeastern or one of those well-known, respected degrees in journalism. I had a state, <laughs> I had a state college diploma. So I wound up in weeklies in the Bronx and hustled because there was one or two people writing at any given time. I wrote so much that the crappy writing was just burnt out and you get you just by osmosis got better and better now some people might pick up the latest thing that i wrote and said ah there's still plenty of crap writing in there <laughs> but it was a decision that i had to make now if you make that decision to get the gig and work right nights right days i used to especially once the kids showed up you've mentioned it several times i'd get up three or four in the morning to get a couple hours of writing in and then go on from there and go with the day. So I only did that because when I was the weekly journalist in the Bronx, cop, it was the, during the crack wars. So cops would call me up two, three in the morning anyway. We got a, we just got a big bus. We just had to come over. We got a table full of stuff you'd take pictures of. Or, hey, you want to go on a raid? We're going to get over here by 4.30. We're going on a raid. And because we wanted the paper to stand out, I would do all those things. Hmm. My my sleep, my body got used to having less sleep. So I would utilize that for years, for decades to keep writing. But here's the rub. I don't have a following yet. It's a little bit's growing here and there. I don't sell a billion copies. And that, my friends, is the truth for a lot of writers. A lot of writers who you've read. A lot of writers who you would say, oh, my God, that's a big name in horror. That's a big name in mystery. Now, I'm not talking about Stephen King. Stevie's doing is really well on his own. Yeah. <laughs> but the tier underneath there is working are working as full time writers. Uh, so the top tier, the second tier, probably just writing. But the next 17 tiers, and there are that many. Most of those people got day gigs. They're working in a diner kitchen or they're lawyers. The guy who did the Repairman Jack store series, 
there's 18 books or something like that, a huge award winner, F. Paul Wilson. His entire career as that cult writer that the people who loved him absolutely loved him. He was a family practitioner doctor. That's the reality. Conan Doyle was a doctor up until the writing really began to take off and, and pay him lucratively. And I'm telling you, Arthur Conan Doyle was in the top two tier, right? F. Paul Wilson, I would say, it was in the third, fourth, at most the fifth. He was, he had a huge following. And there are people who still will say, oh my, Repairman Jack is greatest, blah, 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 blah. He was a doctor. So you're basically saying what if you had to? Well, I'm saying that there's a choice to be made and you have to follow your soul, your heart, your conscience. But I'm also saying there are a ton of working writers, working actors, working musicians who all have other gigs. That's You have to take that into account. I am not saying put your dream second. I'm saying most, you know what, I'll go there. Most people pursuing artistic dreams are doing that on a two-track lifestyle. Mm. Like teaching at the New York Film School and Mm. writing, right? Or I was teaching at public high school and writing. There's, there are so many people who are teaching college or, God, there are scientists who write. There are lawyers who write. Not, not everybody who you have on your shelf right now, ladies and gentlemen, not all of them only. That doesn't make their book better or worse. You love what you love. Mm-hmm. And the people who do this and have a day gig or a night gig. I just, I'm in, in this issue, I was doing the other profile on this beautiful story that opens up monstrous hearts. And he talks about having a solid, very solitary job where he works. And while he's working, if he gets an idea, he writes it down and then keeps going. And just casually, because that is such a reality for so many of us. So I'm not saying... You should go one way or the other, but understand that if you do have to make that choice, you are not alone. There you go. Okay. That that... took me forever to get there, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) One of the things, and I understand that there's a lot of commentary about people's attention span and all that, and you can listen to as much of the show as you want, but the reality is when, unless something's rehearsed or scripted, Sometimes it does take a certain amount of discussion and processing and thinking in order to come to a conclusion. It's not like when someone hits us with these questions, we immediately go, oh, yeah, that's question. That's answer number 16. It's not. And also, I've often said to my students and my clients that writing, you can teach someone certain structural aspects of writing and being a writer. Writing is a creative process. And so it's not like you're putting together a car where all the cogs and wheels and bolts and things have to be exact, exactly the same size because you're putting together countless 
a countless number of these same types of cars. Right. Every time you write a story, you've written a number of stories. I've written a number of stories. Every single time that we sit down to write a story, it's new, even if we're writing about the same characters. Yep. Gorsese and several others, filmmakers that you we know of, that people out there in the audience have heard of, also speak of that. 30 years in the business, 40 years in the business, Oscars up the wazoo. And yeah, every single time they start a new project, it's new. It's yeah. a guarantee this is going to go as well as what came before. So literally, when we sit and we try and answer these questions, we're trying to give you our best take on the answer based on our personal experiences and whatever knowledge and guidance we've received from those who've gone before us. Yes, and occasionally there's layers. So we hope we gave you a layered discussion about the topics today. <laughs> so again, folks, we have uh, two. We are slowly moving towards 300. And we have a bunch of cool stuff. We have more on Soul Screen, which is five issues. And, and we already talked about the multiple layers there. That's exciting. That's uh, yeah. a good time. Smiling. <laughs> and also we have a number of interviews coming up. By the way, we got a lot of really great response from Kevin Grievos interview, who also talked about living out of his car in L.A. when he went there to become a screenwriter and what processes and, and stages he went through before he eventually became an actor, screenwriter, director. Literally, we have more interviews coming up over the next few weeks. That's going to be great. We have a couple of surprises. And I forgot to mention this to you in the green room, Chris. We've decided that we're going to, for those people who gave us prompts, remember that? Episode 268, and I think yes. it was 69. You gave us those prompts, and we riffed off of that. We're going to give you a free story. We're going to get, gather up your email addresses, and we're going to send you a free story by courtesy of Chris and I, and we want to thank you for that. And somewhere down the line, towards the end of this year, if we're all crazy and, and really lucky, maybe we'll take some of the stuff that we came up with from the prompts and develop it even further. See where we go with that. Just see where we go with that. Because we're wild and crazy guys here. i tell you, the, the story that I wound up writing from from the prompts is in, oh God, I have forgotten what it's called, Soul Scream Dark Justice, oh. which is out right now on Amazon. It's in there. It's called Night Fishing. Yeah. And that was from a prompt given to us only, what, four weeks ago? Yeah, it was, I wound up taking about eight of the prompts and they're all in the story you yep. know so yep. there you go so we've got a lot more uh, planned out over the next few weeks as and uh, as we move steadily towards episode 300 so be there aloha or be square <laughs> oh god <laughs> that was so terrible so yep. terrible King chris as always, a pleasure. Good talking to you. I'm sorry. I've been telling bad jokes all day. So. Yeah, and, and there'll be plenty more <laughs> to look forward to. And everybody, thank you for joining us. Please send in your cards and letters. No, send in your questions, your reactions, your thoughts. If we've left something out or if you want us to go deeper on certain questions, give us some sort of an idea by dropping it in the comments below and we will respond as quickly as we can. Yes, and Tell the Damn Story has uh, some social media presence, correct? Yes, we do. We have Instagram. We have the YouTube channel where you can actually see us sitting here looking silly and doing all these. Yeah, it's grimacing and smiling and making goofy faces. 
as well as some of the imagery that goes with some of the uh, things that we've discussed. Yeah. Do yes. we have a Facebook page? Yes, we do. We That's do. Right. So we can they can you can put requests, you can put comments in any of those places as well, and we'll see what we can do. Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or here on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whatever it is you're listening to us on. There's four different places, maybe more, that you can send us a message and say, please explain this to me, or what the heck are you guys talking about? We want to see this. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Tell us how to do that. And we will be back again next week. Take care, everybody. Peace, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Alice.